Our scripture reading today is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Good morning. Uh, my name is Bruce. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, in case we haven't met. A man named uh, Diocletian was a Roman emperor who persecuted Christians so much in the, in the early AD 300s that he built monuments with the inscriptions that read, <clears throat> and I quote, extinguished the name of Christians. And he had other monuments that he had inscriptions written on them that read, and I quote, abolished the superstition of Christ. Now, Diocletian was out to destroy Christianity in the Roman Empire. Now, I would imagine that most of us in here, at least this morning, would likely have never heard of this man's name, let alone seen his face. And that's partly the point, right? While the man is working hard to extinguish the name of Jesus, he himself eventually dies like all human beings do. Yet, friends, today, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is still seated on his throne. Many men and women have worked hard to destroy Jesus, but their efforts are as helpful as trying to sink a floaty. They cannot do it. Jesus Christ is the king, the exalted king, the exalted ruler of the world. He always has been. No one occupies this throne, friends, and no one else should occupy this throne, including that in our hearts. Jesus Christ is the exalted king and the ruler of the world. 
He always will be. Now, our text this morning is one that is rarely preached. I haven't heard it preached. Uh, Yet I think it is very poignant. Uh, After Jesus is born in Bethlehem, um, wise men come. They're from the east. They are looking for this newly born king of the Jews. Uh, But when the then king of the Jews, Herod, uh, hears of this, he's greatly troubled. So the announcement of the king of the Jews being born produces much anxiety in Herod that he convenes a meeting with the chief priests and the scribes and he wants to ascertain the exact location of where this long-awaited king was supposed to be born. After that, Herod calls another conference meeting with the wise men and he wants to ask them what time the star they saw appeared. So after that, he sends them to Bethlehem and he asks them to bring back word about the whereabouts so that he himself would go to this king and worship him. The wise men find the baby and the scriptures say they worshipped him. They gave him gifts. See, this is the most appropriate response when we are in the presence of greatness and in the presence of a king. We give him worship. We give to him, including ourselves, in service to him. The wise men are quickly warned in a dream not to go back to Herod because he had ill intentions towards this child. Sweet baby Jesus, newly born, already has a whole king of a nation, feeling threatened and bristling against his existence. As I read these verses the last couple days, I remembered the words of the psalmist in Psalm 2 where it reads, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So friends, since day one, the kings of this world and the nations of the world have been plotting against the Lord and against his anointed since he was a baby. See, the war on Christmas is not merely the never-ending cultural conflict between traditional, explicitly Christian celebrations of the day against the sinister forms of uh, forces that are secular, right? That's not the real war. I think the real war on Christmas is actually, and more significantly, the ongoing dethronement of King Jesus, especially from the hearts of men and women, boys and girls. And as we will see, this dethronement begins when he's just a baby. They want him gone before he even leaves. Where our story picks up in verse 13, the wise men depart. They go back to their home country. And the first thing that we see Matthew clearly pointing out in this section is that God uses baby Jesus' threats, right, God uses the threats of physical harm on baby Jesus to usher in a picture of the new exodus. This is verses 13 through 15. It reads, 
Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph is told in a dream, take Mary and baby Jesus. You guys get, better get out of here. I don't want to ask mothers that are in here for a second. Can you imagine your husband waking you up in the middle of the night or early in the morning saying, hey, we got to go to Egypt like now, like right now. I hope this doesn't get me in trouble, but I wonder if Mary asked some of the questions I think my wife would ask. Do we have to go this early? How about the peck and play, Joe? Joe, do they have sound machines in Egypt? Do you, you can't just travel like now with a baby, right? I mean, these are questions that any mother would ask, of course, with different variations uh, depending on their context. But they had to flee. They had to leave and go to Egypt. And the reason that they had to flee, well, Herod, as we have seen, wants to find this child and destroy this child. Herod wanted to kill Christmas before Easter even happened. Herod was waging a war on the Christ of Christmas when the Christ of Christmas was merely a baby. He was merely a baby who was cooing, likely breastfeeding from his mother Mary. And I want you to notice how the angel tells them to remain in Egypt Verse 13, until I tell you. So we see them not only being obedient in going, but they're also obedient in that they show their trust. Think about being told to leave your home country to another country indefinitely. Joseph is obedient to, in leading his family to where God wants them to be under his command but he's also willing to trust that God will have them kept there. Now there is a secondary, maybe tertiary uh, lesson for all of you brothers who are husbands and fathers in this room. Lead your families to where God wants you to be. Set the right tone and the right priorities in your households. So, Leave your homeland, take this child, and wait there indefinitely. Such a big ask. So Joseph does. He married the baby. They go to Egypt, and they remain there until Herod dies, right? Look at verse 15 with me. Matthew says something curious there. He says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. So here Matthew is quoting from Hosea 11 verse 1, which reads in full, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But what does this mean? See, Hosea is identifying Israel as God's son. And Matthew is using the same idea to show that Jesus is also God's son. Since the beginning, God's kingdom has consisted of a people in a place 
under his rule, enjoying his blessing. That's the characteristics of God's people. So Matthew here is indicating to us the relationship between Jesus and Israel. Where Israel failed as God's son, Jesus succeeded as God's son. And of course, as you read the Gospels, the, the parallels are very clear, right? Israel spends 40 years in the wilderness, the desert. Jesus, on the other hand, spends 40 days in the wilderness. Israel consists of 12 tribes. And when Jesus begins his ministry, he picks 12 disciples. So Jesus then, friends, came to do what Israel failed to do. Jesus came to be what Israel failed to be. So then God sends his son into Egypt. See, there are places that invoke particular memories. Some good, some bad. For example, if I mention, at least if I'm in America, Columbine High School, there are particular memories that are invoked by just that place. If you're American, and you probably know what happened there. In the same way, Matthew's readers also had particular memories and particular thoughts that were specific to them when they would hear about Egypt, right? To the readers of Matthew, Egypt represented two things. On one hand, Egypt represented a new start. When the people of God are you know, famished in the land of Israel in trouble, they find uh, comfort and food in Egypt when Joseph is second in charge to the Pharaoh. So fresh start, they settle there, they had a great time. But also, Egypt conjured up memories of them, of their enslavement and the hardships that they suffered under a new Pharaoh and his brutality. So then, baby Jesus going into Egypt for refuge is spared this time, right? God is literally protecting his son. But there is a catch here, friends, that is so obvious, I hope you don't miss. God would not protect his son from the same brutality 30-some years later. In fact, you would be handed over to sinful men that killed him, but in this instance, under Herod, uh, you know, authority and rule, Jesus' life is in danger, and he goes to Egypt for refuge. He's reenacting how Israel went into Egypt for refuge, and at a given time, that God will determine he will be called out by God, the same way that Israel was called out by God. I hope you see the significance of this, friends. It's mind-blowing. Herod, a wicked ruler, who means evil for this newborn king, is ruling and reigning. But God uses those very wicked intentions <laughs> to fulfill his plan for salvation. And there's another beautiful thing going on here. where When God calls his son out of Egypt, it's signaling to us the reality that God's son, the Lord Jesus, is the ultimate deliverer of God's people from their enslavement to sin and death. Israel, as Matthew is writing, is filled with idolatry, 
These people are worshiping false gods. They don't keep or observe the law. Like their ancestors, the Israelites at this time were lost. They are longing for deliverance from the rule of the Romans. Physically, they are living in the Roman Empire, but they are actually in Egypt. Herod is literally behaving like Pharaoh. He's a bad, bad ruler. They need a savior. They need a deliverer of the caliber of Moses, but even greater. And behold, he had come. And he had come to deliver them, not merely from their political troubles, but from their enslavement to sin. See, some of us here this morning are still in Egypt, friends. Still enslaved to the passions of our fleshly desires. Whatever comes to our minds, we do. Whatever our flesh desires, we give it. Whatever comes to our minds, we say it or, or we post it. We, we, we are enslaved to our desires. Whatever the world declares as important, we play along and also call it important. We cannot say no to unrighteousness and yes to righteousness. That's enslavement. The moment you can't say no, you're a slave. We may talk the talk. We may have all the right Christmas paraphernalia in our, in our homes. But it, it's likely that you could be seated in here and in Egypt. Lost, dead in the trespasses of your sin, broken marriages, broken families, broken lives. But here's the good news that I want to encourage you with this morning. Jesus is the deliverer who can take people from that enslavement to the promised king of his father. Why don't you trust him today? Maybe some of us have been enslaved, but have been pretending that we're not enslaved, right? So it's a little embarrassing to admit that I'm actually a slave. I, I act like I'm free outside, but man, I can't say no to some of these things. Trust me, friends, it's, it's better, it's way better to actually be delivered than to pretend you're delivered. The deliverer is extending his hand to you. Out of Egypt, he was called. And he wants to come out of Egypt with you. We see as this unfolds that while Jesus, the true king, is in exile in Egypt, Herod who is the king of the Jews, slaughters babies as he seeks to kill and destroy Jesus. We see in this next sec section, Matthew adding more color to this picture. He shows us a politician who is threatened and he begins to go berserk. And yet, there is hope for God's people, even in the midst of all this because of the new covenant. This is verse 16 and, uh, through 18. It reads, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise man, became furious, and he sent and killed all male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise man. 
It's amazing to me how many Christians do not ever think about the political nature of the coming of the Lord Jesus. Of course, we rightly think of other things, but Herod seems to know a little bit more than maybe we do. Herod knew that this baby, who is called the king of the Jews, was dangerous. If this baby was let leave, he was going to offset his power and his reign. See, friends, the coming of Jesus means something in every realm of life. Our lives cannot be the same after we encounter this king. See, while the powers that be, like Herod, would do anything to preserve their power, God displays his ultimate power by preserving for us and presenting to us a savior king. So while the king is away, this despotic king orders that babies that are two and under in Bethlehem are killed. I want you, friends, to imagine this scene with me. I want you to imagine Herod's soldiers knocking on all the doors in Bethlehem or kicking and bursting into them. I can imagine the mothers and the fathers and the grandparents grasping at their straws, trying to rescue these innocent children to protect them. Perhaps some of these parents even lied about the age of their children so that they would be protected. Imagine little Johnny is going to be killed simply because he's 18 months old and that King Herod wants to preserve his power. How sad and how brutal. But here's the point. The powers that be, the kings of this world, will do anything to preserve their power. But God displays his ultimate power by preserving for us a savior king and presenting him to us. While King Herod takes the lives of many so that he preserves his life, the life of one, the baby we celebrated Christmas would give up his own life, give up his seat of power, give up his own life so that many could be saved. In verse 17, again, Matthew sees this tragic event as a fulfillment of a prophecy in the Old Testament, namely from Jeremiah 31. Look at verse 18. It reads, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. What does this mean? Ramah was a place where Israelite prisoners of war were kept and sent to during the Babylonian captivity. But also, Ramah was the burial site of Rachel. Rachel is the wife of Jacob, whose other name was Israel. She dies in Genesis chapter 35 while giving birth to Benjamin. But interestingly, a couple chapters before that, Rachel exclaims, give me children or I die. And sadly, four chapters later, she gets both. She gets a child and she dies. And, and Rachel is buried near Bethlehem and earshot from Ramah. 
So in Jeremiah 31, Rachel is weeping in Ramah because her children are in captivity. Her children are in exile. This is a time of deep, deep sadness and deep, deep mourning for God's people. But you see, Jeremiah 31 is also a chapter filled with incredible amount of hope. Turn there with me and look at a few verses if you can. I'm sure it will be up there on the screen. Uh, verse 15 of Jeremiah 31 reads, as we saw it in Matthew, 18, uh, Matthew 2, excuse me. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. But look at verse 16. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. If you go a couple of verses further, in verse 31, a beautiful text, Behold, declares the Lord, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. But in this covenant, the Lord could rescue them from their captivity. But here is the kicker. The same way that the Israelites were in Egypt, the same way that we are in Egypt ourselves, they were also at this point in Ramah, the same way that we are in Ramah. When Jesus steps into the scene, the world is broken. The kings, of, the kings and the rulers of the world are evil and corrupt. So Rachel moans. We are exiles and aliens on earth. We moan and we groan. But there is hope here, friends. Rachel needs to weep no more because God would sort this all out. God would make a new covenant with Israel and all will be well. They will return to their land and be with God forever. So as Matthew's Jewish audience reads this quotation from Jeremiah, they knew that this quotation was in a hope-filled literary context. A new covenant is on the way. Rachel would weep no more. Even with the brutality of Herod. And friends, the same is true for you today. You can weep no more because Jesus has come. You have all the reason in the world to be the most joyful of all people. If Jesus has come, the new covenant from God has been instituted. Those that were enemies of God can be friends of God. Those that were alienated from God can be reconciled to God. Rachel needs to weep no more. We have all the reasons to be filled with joy because Jesus has come. A father wanted to give his daughter something to do, you know, Needed a couple minutes to read his book or something. Little girl is bored. Takes a, he sees a piece of paper with a picture of the world. Takes a scissors and he cuts 
cuts it all up into many, many pieces, piles them into his hand, gives to, the, to his daughter and says, hey, you got something to do. F- fix this puzzle. I'll be back in, a, in 30 minutes' time. Parent needed a break. So the little girl agrees, but uh, four or five minutes later, she's back calling dad, I've done it. Come and see. And of course, the dad is stupefied. Like, how, how did you do that so quickly? Like, I didn't know four-year-olds are this fast and solving puzzles. So when the dad asks her how she had done this task so quickly, she said, oh, it was so easy, dad. On the back of the picture you gave me, I don't know if you saw, but there was a picture of Jesus back there. So I figured if I got him right, the, the whole world would just fall into place. Does our world sometimes feel like it's torn into pieces that are just thrown to us? All the chaos around us? But there's a solution. <laughs> if we get Jesus right, if we figure the king who was sent right, we have all the reasons to be the most joyful of people. And this is good news, friends. While there's weeping and moaning in Rama, even at the hands of a brutal king like Herod, if we keep our eyes on the Savior King, our worlds will be all right, even in the midst of chaos. What are the things that are making you moan and refuse to be comforted this morning? I want to encourage you and tell you that you have a certain hope. God has sent his son. You need to weep no more. If, if you see the picture of this king, how brilliant and excellent he is, and you continue moaning and moping about the chaos around you, perhaps you don't understand what you have in him. Because this son has come, those that are confused have illumination. Those that are burdened can exchange their burdens for his burden, which is light. King Jesus comes. He's a threat to Herod's kingdom. And I hope this is clear to all of us in this room. Because if it's true about Jesus, guess what? It's also going to be true about you. As the world continues to unfold, history continues to roll on, I don't foresee our faith being the most popular. But I want to encourage you to enjoy, brothers and sisters. It will be night before it is day. And only those who enjoy and rely on his power, right? Not our power, not our ways and our means, but on his power. Only those that, that rely on his power will see the morning. While the powers that be will do anything to preserve their own power, God displays his ultimate power by preserving for us and presenting to us a savior king. But what kind of a king will this be? What kind of a kingdom will he usher? Matthew shows us how he will be from a very poor upbringing, yet he would usher in a new kingdom. Verses 19 through 23. Verses 19 reads, 
But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Again, we see uh, Joseph's obedience here, right? After patiently waiting for the word from the Lord, and after Herod dies, they went back to the land of Israel. After Herod died. I said, after Herod died. Friends, Herods always die. You know why? Because they are human. But you know who died and resurrected and lives forever? Our Lord and King Jesus Christ. He rules and reigns forever. See, there is an expiration date on all the powerful kings of this world, friends. If you are going to give your life to a king, I suggest you check if their credentials are eternal. If you are going to give your allegiance and very existence to a king, I suggest you check to see if they are blameless and holy. Because the last time I checked, there's only one king that has this on their resume, and his name is Jesus. He is worth of all our praise and all our adoration and our very lives. So Joseph, Mary, baby Jesus, they go back to Israel. Joseph is warned in a dream that there is danger, and he goes to live in a city called Nazareth. What's the danger? Herod's son had ascended the throne. I hope you see the point here again, right? If you tie your hopes on the rulers of this world, I'm not a prophet, but I can tell you that you'll be greatly disappointed. The next guy is going to be a different version of the next guy. Who's going to be a different version of the next guy? But you know who's not a different version of himself? Day after day, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, eternity. Our king and his name is Jesus. Notice how Matthew uses his words in verse 23. He says, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. That he will be called a Nazarene. There's a problem here. The problem is that there's no verse in the Bible that actually says Jesus would be a Nazarene. So what Matthew is actually doing here by using the idea that what was spoken by the prophets is he's saying Jesus being a Nazarene was the fulfillment of a general theme among the prophets. But secondly, Nazareth was also a despised place. Remember the saying, nothing good could come out of Nazareth. Nothing good. But guess what? The king who is above every other king, he came from the lowliest of places. We see in this text a number of ways where Jesus seems to be lowly and seemingly weak, right? He's a baby. Babies are weak. They're reliant and dependent. But he's also a, a refugee on the run. Refugees are running away from danger from their home countries and they are 
wherever they can be accepted. It's weak and lowly. But also he's from Nazareth, that despised and poor place. Remember in Acts chapter 24, Paul is before Felix in Caesarea and he's mockingly called the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So to Matthew's original readers, the idea of Jesus being a Nazarene was the idea of him being lowly, being of no repute. This is how our God works, friends. The great king of the universe, Jesus Christ, is despised, is lowly. Jesus wasn't cool. He wasn't the cool kid. He wasn't cute. He wasn't fly. In fact, Isaiah says of him in Isaiah 53, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised and we esteemed him not. You would think that a king who's a threat to all the kings of this world would come in with all the pomp and all the flair. But no, he is lowly. He is poor in the eyes of men. If he lived today, he wouldn't be insta-famous. Probably wouldn't have a YouTube channel because he didn't have good looks. Friends, welcome to the upside-down kingdom where true power is shown in weakness, where true wealth is shown in poverty, where true wisdom is looked at as foolishness. Our great king, the king of the universe, is not like any other king, yet he wields all the power. And the same power is able to raise those that are spiritually dead. This is how this upside-down kingdom works. While the powers that, that be will do anything to preserve their own power, God displays his ultimate power in preserving for us and presenting to us a savior king. In this new kingdom, the king of kings comes down from his throne. He initiates a new exodus. He makes a new covenant with his people and he ushers in a new kingdom. While the kings of this world plot and devise to dethrone him, guess what he does? He chooses to come from his seat of his power on high and be on the earth. But for what reason? He came for you and he came for me. Derek Redmond was a runner on the uh, a British sprint team. He was running the 400-meter semifinal, um, and as he runs, you know, he's sprinting, he turns a corner, and he pulls his Achilles tendon. He, fell, he falls flat on his face. He's laying on the ground, desperately in pain. But he gets up. He starts to limp along the track, so he finishes the race. You can see the pain and the anguish on his face. But in the midst of all this unfolding drama, a man comes down from the stands, goes over onto the tracks, picks Derek up. One of the judges runs after him and says, Sir, 
You shouldn't be here. Leave the track. The older gentleman waved his hand and said, leave me alone. This is my boy. Derek Redmond's father, Jim, left the stand. Came down to where Derek was, fallen, defeated. Picked him up, put him on his shoulder, puts his arms around his son and helps him to cross the finish line. Are you down in the dirt? Feeling defeated? There's someone who came from the stands, friends, who sits on high but came down to pick you up, put his arm around you, walk with you to the finish line. Are you going to rely on him? Are you going to rely on his power? Friends, what a king we have. What a, what a savior we have. While the powers that be in the world would use their power to, pres uh, to preserve their own power, kill babies, do anything that they want, the most powerful king comes down and he rescues us. I predicted my dead harder and harder for God's people across the world and even in here in America, but we will not fret. God came down to us. He will keep us. If the worst thing that can ever happen to us is that they take our lives, that's totally fine. Because in the next instant, we will be with him who wields all the power. Let us pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for sending us your son, our Lord, came down from on high to deliver us from sin and death. I pray that we behold him. I pray, Father, that you grow an appetite for us to not be impressed by these worldly kings, worldly rulers who can't offer us nothing, but you offer us the greatest thing that we need, salvation. Pray, Father, that you would help us to cling to this, to trust you, even in the midst of all the chaos around us. We love you. We praise you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.